God will come. God will deliver us and we will go home. That is biblical faith in a nutshell. That is a faith that reaches all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to Genesis 3.15. That is what it looks like to believe in the promises of God. Because Old Testament and New, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. God will come, God will deliver us, and God will bring us home. That is the story of the Bible in a nutshell, and we've been talking about that now for the better part of the year, and today we come to the end of the first part of what we hope will be a long and fruitful journey through the whole Word of God. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 50. This is the last chapter in the first book of the Bible. It has been a marvelous journey, and along the way we have learned many things about God, about us, and about how God saves us through the person and work of Christ. The faith we have seen in this book is a forward-looking faith. It is a faith that recalls the promise God made in Genesis 3.15 and which was then clarified and entrusted to the family of Abraham. It is a faith that has been severely tested and lovingly refined over ages and generations. And it is a faith that burns brightly still in the heart of Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, right up until the end. We pick up the story at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him, and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many days are required for embalming. Both Jacob and Joseph are embalmed, though they are the only Jewish people to undergo this procedure in all of Scripture. It was an Egyptian custom, And it was normally associated with the Egyptian religion and their views on the afterlife. But the Bible makes it clear that no such religious connotations are to be assumed here. The JPS Torah commentary, for example, says, In both cases, the act is a purely practical measure. For Jacob is to be buried far from his place of death, and Joseph is to be reinterred many years later. The text subtly underlines the disconnection of the embalming procedure from any pagan context by having Joseph entrust the task to physicians in his service. It was not performed by professional mortuary priests. Close quote. The text goes on to say, And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. That the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days tells us of the high regard that they had for Joseph and for Jacob. We remember the awe that Pharaoh felt in Jacob's presence, and we remember that he allowed himself to be blessed by Jacob. Jacob was obviously held in very high regard by the Egyptians. It was Egyptian custom to mourn a 
Pharaoh for 72 days. So to mourn Jacob for 70 days, just two days less than the maximum permissible, was very significant. Verse 4 says, And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself. That Hebrew phrase means that I prepared for myself. In the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus, his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. This account of Jacob's funeral procession and burial is filled with interesting insights from the ancient world. The funeral happened in two stages. First, the entire procession, which included Joseph and his brothers and a large contingent of Egyptian dignitaries and even a military escort stopped at a place called the threshing floor of Atat. Now, historians and archaeologists have not been able to locate this floor, and it is never mentioned again in the Bible. However, there is good reason to think that it was somewhere southwest of Gaza, on the shore of the Mediterranean, along the desert road that connected the Egyptian capital with the land of Canaan and beyond that, Asia. The Egyptians maintained a stronghold there, and historians have discovered that this stronghold was also used as a burial ground for high-ranking Egyptians. So we don't know where the specific threshing floor was exactly, but we can be reasonably confident about the general region. On this site, a funeral was hosted that included the entire Egyptian entourage. And then from there, after mourning, Seven days, the family proceeded to their burial cave for a private interment. Many of the Jewish burial rites, even today, mimic or maintain this ancient custom. You've maybe heard of friends or relatives sitting shiva for seven days. It's a, an ancient custom that was observed all throughout the region. Verse 15 says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. 
So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph's brothers think that now that Jacob is dead, Joseph will finally seek his revenge after treating them kindly for 17 years. They, they think it might have all been a ruse intended to deceive their father. And that is why Joseph weeps. It has not been a ruse. He has legitimately forgiven them, and he comforts them with words of kindness and reassurance. I love what Derek Kidner says here. He says, each sentence of his threefold reply is a pinnacle of Old Testament and New Testament faith. To leave all the writing of one's wrongs to God. To see his providence in man's malice. And to repay evil, not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection. Are attitudes which anticipate the adjective Christian and even Christ-like. That is well said. Verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph's final words bear repeating, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. God will come. God will deliver us, and we will go home. That is biblical faith in a nutshell. That is a faith that reaches all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to Genesis 3.15. That is what it looks like to believe in the promises of God. Because Old Testament and New, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I love how the beginning and the end of the book of Genesis tie together. At the end of the story, it sounds like Jacob is all packed up and ready to go on a journey. He knows that Egypt is not the end of the line. He is heading for the promised land. 
even if he has to carry his bones there in a box. This is a story about promises and journeys and blessings that we won't possess in their fullness on this side of the grave. Am I reading that right? Yeah, absolutely. From Genesis 3 onward in the Bible, the people of God are on a journey. They are outside and hoping to get back inside. And the journey down into Egypt and then up out of Egypt serves as a sort of template or pattern for the story of redemption as a whole. The little story explains or illustrates the big story. Yes. So now before we get into that, I want to touch on something that happened just before the end of Genesis 50. In verses 15 to 18, Joseph's brothers are worried that now that dad is out of the way, Joseph is going to take his revenge. They treated him as a young man. So they concoct this story about how Jacob left instructions for Joseph to be kind to them. And then Joseph weeps because he can't believe that his brothers would still think that after all they've learned and after all they've been through. And he says in verses 20 to 21, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. End quote. So this was all part of God's plan to bring about salvation. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That is mind-blowing. How does that work out in practice? Like, how can a good God use evil deeds and evil intentions to accomplish the work of salvation? Well, I don't know. I, I definitely couldn't do it. But somehow, in the providence of God, he does do it. He does it all the time. Maybe that's one of the benefits of existing outside of the space-time continuum. Maybe God sees things in such a way that he can twist and bend even our evil actions toward the good and glorious ends that he designs. I don't know how to do that. Nobody knows how to do that. Nobody knows how God does that. We just know that he does do that. The Apostle Paul says that in the New Testament. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So in the end, all things, even evil things done for wicked reasons, all things will work together for good. Not for everyone's good, not for the good of wicked people, that's for sure. But Paul says, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things will work together for their good and for God's eternal glory. On Judgment Day, we will watch and we will finally understand how even evil actions done for wicked reasons were turned and bent and superintended by God toward good and glorious ends. It will be the greatest show in human history. And when it's over, we will all fall down and worship the Lord who sits enthroned in the heavens. He knows how to do this, and he does do it over and over and over again in the Bible and throughout all of human history. Yeah, I've heard you talk about this before. You call it double causality or something like that. Yeah, now I didn't invent that. I'm just repeating what theologians will say when describing this sort of thing. The Bible is clear that people make real choices for which they are held accountable. And yet at the same time, God uses those choices and twists and bends those choices such that they do nothing other than what God has ordained to occur from eternity past. So in a sense, God is the cause, and in a sense, we are the cause. That's what theologians mean by double causality. It's one of those doctrines that we can't fully understand because we're not God. 
from our perspective, both of those things can't be true. But from God's perspective, or maybe better, given God's perspective, they can both be true, and they are both true. You can mean things for evil, and God can ordain them for good. Yeah, I'm still not sure I quite understand that, but I am definitely glad that it's true. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Okay. All right. Back to the theme of journey that runs all the way through the book of Genesis and that we started talking about just a few minutes ago. At the end of this story, Jacob is all packed up, as it were. He's been mummified, and he's been given instructions about his bones being carried up out of Egypt and back into the promised land. How does that all work out? Does he ever get there? Yeah. And in fact, the book of Exodus picks up right where the book of Genesis leaves off. The The book of Exodus actually begins with the word and in Hebrew, meaning that it's intended to be read as part two of this story. Huh, that's very cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. In, in fact, the first five books of the Bible are all a set, really. They're all one book, the book of Moses. We sometimes call them the Pentateuch. So really, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 of one giant book. But for the sake of practicality, in terms of reading, copying, and and teaching from these things, they were divided up into five sections, five books that we all know and hopefully love and read today. All right, so Exodus 1 carries right on from Genesis 50. Yeah, but then after a few verses, it shifts forward about 400 years. So Exodus 1 begins, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. And then he names them, right? So that's the direct carryover. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, this is verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Okay, yeah, you mentioned that a couple of episodes ago. A new king arose who was worried about the fertility of the Hebrews, and he took steps to begin to oppress them. That was 400 years later? Roughly. Uh, There's some debate as to when exactly the Exodus takes place. Really good arguments are put forward for two different dates by faithful people on both sides. But either way, the story is that Israel grew and grew and grew. They became a nation inside the incubator of Egypt. But then when the time came, God called them out. Egypt was never supposed to be home. As nice as it was, as safe as it was, as glorious as it was, it wasn't the promised land. God is always calling us forward into something better. Yeah, I've come to recognize that theme. Now, before we bring this series to a close, I want to look back, if we can, and capture some of the lessons we've learned along the way. I've heard you say before that we read the Bible to learn about God, about us, and about how God saves us through the person and work of Christ. So if I were starting a list, what sort of things would I be entering into those three columns after working my way through the book of Genesis? Well, I think your first column would definitely have something in there about how God is large and in charge. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the main idea in Genesis, especially in the first couple of chapters. God is 
over it all. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the boss. And men and women were intended to be under God and over everything else. But they can only do their jobs when they're in right relationship to God. Everything falls apart when they try and be God's deciding right and wrong for themselves. So I think we've learned that God is sovereign. I think we've learned that his word is powerful and life-giving and authoritative. And I think we've learned that God is holy and loving. Yeah, I like how you say holy and loving as opposed to holy but Mm -hmm. loving, as if God's love reduced or somehow modified his holiness. Yes, good catch. One of the things theologians say is that God is all of who he is in everything he does, meaning the attributes of God aren't in conflict with one another. It isn't as though God is holy in some chapters, but then love breaks out and he softens his tone a little bit and takes a different course. No, God is always holy and loving. He is holy love. And you can always see both of those attributes on display in every story. So think of the flood story. He is holy love there. He is holy, and so he won't put up with the kind of nonsense that was going on at the time. And he is love, so he tells Noah to build an ark and to make it big and to keep the door open for a really long time. God is everything he is in everything he does. Mm, I like that. Now, what did we learn about us as human beings? Well, too much probably to summarize in a minute or two, but we've talked a few episodes ago about how there are these archetypal stories. They tell us what happened and they tell us what happens. This is how humans behave, these stories say. We lie when we're afraid, just like Abraham did. We scheme and we steal when we don't trust the Lord, just like Jacob did. We abuse the vulnerable, just like Onan did and and like Judah did. And we often have to learn things the hard way, like the brothers of Joseph did. And we often get way too attached to Egypt like the people of Israel as a whole did. But that's a story for another day. All of these stories are stories about us. They are stories about people, and they are stories about how God saves people. Right, and that's the last category. So fill that in for us a little bit. Well, as we talked about several episodes ago, the Joseph story is actually one of the classic Jesus illustrations in the Old Testament. There are all kinds of illustrations in advance in the Old Testament, and this is one of the main ones. Stephen uses it as a Jesus illustration in his gospel sermon in Acts 7. The basic idea is that God sends a Redeemer, whom we often initially don't recognize. We often initially reject, and we often initially despise, who despite all our worst efforts, does exactly what needs to be done to secure our salvation as a people. God knows what he's doing. He sees the whole board. He's working a plan. He knows how to use even our evil actions and intentions to accomplish his work of redemption. Thanks be to God. Amen. I can't wait to hear more about that in the days and episodes to come. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. 
We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 